Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I, uh, I apologize about not getting that email back to you, but uh, it was a technical thing. I did send it back. I'm usually very diligent with those things. Um, and I, but I'm not good with trying to identify a, a, a title for my message. So you kind of caught me spontaneously divulging what is the whole, what's in the, my whole message, and I want it to be a little bit, uh, a little bit secretive until we got in, into the heart of the message. Anyway, um, uh, I apologize for that. Uh, just I know that... Uh, you count on people to to uh, follow through with things. But one thing for sure, Lisa, that was a wonderful, beautiful song, and it was passionate, and it's a great way to introduce the message, so, so thank you. You have such a talented church here. Just about everybody out here, probably everybody here, is, uh, has got talent, and that's, uh, that's every time I come here, it's amazing. And it is not a sacrifice. It's a labor of love coming here. I really enjoy it's It's, it's great coming here. I really enjoy being with you. Um, so it's, it, the, it, it's all always, as you know, uh, those of us that uh, speak, there's a, whole, a lot of work and effort that goes into preparing a message. But it is a labor of love. And the things that we learn in our preparation to try to share with you as a congregation benefits us so much. So um, we gain from that, obviously. I want to just, uh, just the other day I was watching the news and um, it was, um, it was, uh, I'm trying to think of her name now. She was the medical correspondent. She was talking about this young man, a 14-year-old boy, teenager, uh, named Jonathan um, Peary. I think that's the way it's pronounced. I don't think I have that right. Jonathan Petrie is his name. 14-year-old boy, and uh, they were filming him as his mother was carrying him down the stairs into the living room. And she set him into a, a chair, um, and then the interview went on, and his mother was talking about how much of a challenge it was uh, for the whole family, for this, for this little uh, young boy, who was definitely um, smaller than a, uh, than a typical 14-year-old boy. He, um, he had a condition called epidermolosis bullosa, which is a skin condition which uh, they call him the, uh, the butterfly child because his skin is just as fragile as the, the wings of a butterfly. And every day his mother uh, replaces the bandages and the, the skin comes off as she puts, covers his arms and legs. And uh, he's missing. He looks much like a, a child that has leprosy, missing some of his fingers and his toes, and uh, suffers and suffers and suffers. Uh, and it's a very, quite a rare condition. But... But I was moved by this young man because he had gone to a conference of some kind where they had others uh, who had the same condition, and he was touched with compassion for those of his fellow sufferers to the point that he started uh, to raise money for them, and he had a passion. You could see the passion in this young boy's, um, in the way he spoke and in his, 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 his um, focus uh, it was it was it was very moving, uh, and so you know he, he when we get to the end of this message, I'll tell you some of the things that made him passionate. 
but uh, we'll, we'll address some of those even as we expound from the, from the Word of God. What, is, what would you say is one of the greatest risks that we, we run into as a, as a Christian? What are the greatest risks for, the, for a, a Christian in their walk? Uh, Gord, what would you say? You got it. <laughs> and I think the title kind of gave that away a little bit. But there are a lot of other things. You know, we could argue what are the things that would be um, most destructive to the Christian. But certainly that, that uh, aspect of complacency and lukewarmness uh, is something that uh, we all have to be concerned about. And you might say, because, you know, I come here and I see the energy and the passion that's generated in here, the singing and the, and the, and the enthusiasm that's here. And you say, well, you know, how can this message be any, of any benefit to me? And yet, in fact, we are all potentially vulnerable to becoming complacent in our calling. We can lose that passion. Most of us feel that passion when we first come into the church. But over time, as just as it's said in Revelation 2, where it talks about the first church, the Ephesian church, I've been going through a number of scriptures that deal with, it, with the Ephesian church and uh, putting on the armor of God and how they could have been, could have been deceived. But one of the things it says there that they, they were diligent because they, they, they um, understood the, the, the importance of being identified to how to identify someone who was a true man of God and who wasn't. And, uh, but they had lost their first love. That was one of the things that Jesus Christ uh, identified there that was the main problem in that particular church. They lost their first love. And that isn't totally different from what we want to talk about here today, although we'll talk about uh, the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church is one of the churches that we don't want to be identified with. It has the characteristic of being the only of the seven churches that is not commended for doing something that is good or being something that is good. Jesus Christ comes there and is very, very strong in his admonition and correction of that church. And so we might say, well, we're not a Laodicean church. But it is interesting how churches go through, go through cycles. I had heard it said that it's usually the third generation. The first generation is on fire. They have a passion. They have a mission. There is this general re- mentality of revival. The next generation loses a little bit of that. And when you get to the third generation, we enter the generation of what we might see here in Revelation, Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church, this seventh church. And, the, and, the, and one of the things that, we'll get to that in just a minute here, but one of the things, I mean, you can turn to Revelation 3 if you'd like to, because we're going to spend a lot of our time there. Um, oops, excuse me. Just lift it up. Okay. Oh, good. Look at that technology. That <laughs> isn't that great. Um, that the the um, this particular church um, is an example to us of a, of a church that may at one time and probably was at one time very passionate about their calling, about their relationship with Jesus Christ, about the about the work. Uh, I had heard in years gone by, going back 20 or 30 years, that if you want to stay committed to Jesus Christ, get involved with the work. It's always, it's, that's, that's something that's stuck in my mind, and I think that's basically true, that we want to take ownership for what this church stands for and what we're committed to. And, um, and the Laodicean church probably was a very diligent church, but had slipped into this mentality that was 
a very serious state of mind. One of the things that as I, as I go through here that, um, that I find quite interesting because I look at this as kind of a um, Jesus Christ is called the, the great physician. And as you go through these seven churches, uh, it would be, it almost would seem that Christ is saying at the very onset here through the Apostle John that here are my credentials. To the angel, to the messenger of the church of Laodicea, here are my credentials. These, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. He is establishing himself as um, an unquestionable source. And, and as such, um, it behooves us to take what John is writing here by the inspiration of Jesus Christ as ver- to be very serious. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So that so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. That's, those are, that's strong terminology, very strong terminology. You could use the word vomit there, or you could use the word spit, but it's, uh, it conveys the same general idea as that, uh, that it, it, it says here that um, I will spew you out of my mouth, but the reality is it's conditional. Because as we go on through here, we can see that unless... The condition is, unless you repent and change, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There's a level of intimacy that's conveyed here. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So although this is addressed to a literal church um, in the Asia Minor area, which we would call Turkey today, and I'll, I'll deal with some of the geopolitical factors that tie in with this, the typology, the, the uh, um, almost ironic typology of where they lived and how that tied in with the mentality of the, uh, the Laodiceans in that church. But So this is addressed to a literal church at that time. But it's also addressed to all of the subsequent churches that would follow after that. And so it's very pertinent to us. But on top of that and beyond that, it's, a, it's addressed to each one of us individually. Because when it says, to hear he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you are receptive, if you are willing to listen, then God will open up your eyes and ears to understanding. I think we're here with ears to hear. So if you aren't lacking in zeal and passion, which I I would never want to claim that you are because I see passion here and I see zeal, I see enthusiasm, then the the value of this message is is a preemptive value. 
it's, it's preventative. It's to make you aware of what can actually transpire, even if you happen to be the most zealous person in this congregation, even if I happen to be the most zealous person in the church of God. What can happen to me is what happened to this church. I can become lukewarm. And that can happen for a number of reasons. Jesus Christ addresses one of the key reasons here, but I'm going to, I'm going to open this up to you for a minute. What are some of the reasons that would have us turn from being lukewarm, uh, being from passionate to turning to being lukewarm? What are some of the things that you think might be, and maybe you can relate to some of the things that might lead you that, down that path? Gord. which is part of what this message is about here, isn't it? Are there other things that can, because I know the focus is on that particular uh, perspective, are there other things that can make you become lukewarm? I think that's a, that's a very good reason. We, we, we come here passionate when we first come to the church, and then what happens is we get disillusioned, and there's conflict, and we start to see humanness. Human beings reacting in a way that maybe they shouldn't. A little bit of carnality there from time to time, because we're all we're all capable of doing that. We we can all fall into that from time to time. And if you happen to be a person that had uh, this perspective that the church should be perfect, so we have this distorted view of what the church ought to be. Obviously, that's the view and a goal we should aspire to. But to recognize that within the church of God. There's going to be humanists. There's going to be error made. There's going to be people that are going to make mistakes, people that are going to offend you. And there are all kinds of ways that we can try to mitigate that through going back and forgiving and, and asking for forgiveness and approaching. So there are all things. But certainly one of the things that can be, make us become disillusioned with the church is sometimes conflict within the church. Yeah, Yeah, that's a powerful one. For sure, overconfidence, and that ties in with a little bit with uh, pride, I guess, doesn't it? So that when when pride sets in, when you start to feel self-sufficient, depending on yourself, and some of those things that, that Christ brings out here that we'll we'll address. Uh, anything else, I, uh, Dylan? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that is, we had a message last week about, uh, Ken Allen spoke on uh, being a, a lamp or a light. Went to uh, uh, Matthew 25 about the ten virgins, the ones that had, had uh, saved enough of their oil, had oiled in their lamps, but also saved some extra oil. And uh, that, in fact, um, what I'm going to do is have you turn there right now. Thanks. Let's turn to uh, Matthew 5, not to, not to 25, but Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5 with me, please. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start on, at, um, on verse 13, but I'm going to backtrack here a little bit too after. Let's begin with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men, by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is, God, this is Jesus Christ's description of those who are disciples of his. Nor 
do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, and that's a, that, uh, that brings to point what, uh, what Dill is saying here, that if all we do is blend in with society, if we become just part of the crowd, if we become politically correct, if everything we want to do is such that we don't want to bring upon us any condemnation or any criticism or stand out, then we're defying exactly what it says here. If we live a life with passion, a Christian life with passion, inevitably we're going to stand out. Because it says we're not of this world. Although we are in the world, we're not of the world. Jesus Christ said, if they hated me, they will hate you too. Now that's not true of everybody, of course, because when we live a righteous life and we, we're kind and gentle with others, we will be, people will be drawn to us and they will, they will actually like us and love us because of that. But those who are under the influence of Satan will, will hate us. They will actually hate us and want to destroy us. And you're going to experience that. And part of what we read above here, let's begin in verse 1 again. Here, let's begin in, in verse 1. Because when, he, when, when Jesus talks about being a light set, set on a lampstand or salt that has, has a seasoning effect or has this effect of, of uh, uh, stimulating or, or uh, you know, salt can be used in different ways, can have a healing effect because you put salt in the wound, it kills the bacteria, but boy, does it sting. And, and so we can have that impact on the world because when you address one of the things I'm happy about our, our bylaws is that not only are our goals and objectives to preach the good news, but there's also in brackets and a warning message. That warning message is a stinging message. It's part and parcel of our calling. We need to warn the world about the consequences of the route where it's going. God always provides a warning. He will not bring calamity upon the world or us individually with us, without us being warned first. And we are called to provide a warning, not just a good news message, which is, I mean, I'm ecstatic about the good news, but it has to be coupled with a warning message. And the church has always done that. The church, when it was on track, now I have seen, and I've, I've, I have seen at times, where we've tried to steer away from uh, sensitive issues in order to make our message more palatable. But we can't be so um, concerned about the feelings of others that we fail to convey the message that God wants us to convey to the world. And, and if we're too gentle, too kind, and we present it in such a way... I mean, if, if there's one thing that I'm passionate about... Um, and there, there are other things, but uh, when I see the murdering of little innocent unborn babies, that gets to the heart and soul of, 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 of my um, righteous indignation. I just feel so strongly about that issue. And I can't, I mean, I've seen people in our office, young girls who have confided and said that they've had an abortion. And I'm sad for them. I'm not angry at them. I'm angry at a world that has twisted and distorted the truth and convinced these young girls that it's just okay to do that and there are no consequences. And now you'll be able to go on and live life. So there, I don't want to get too sidetracked here on this, but, but there are things we can be passionate about. 
Are we afraid to talk about those things? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. But the Beatitudes reflects a lifestyle, and I won't go through each one of these, but they're, they're, they're absolutely beautiful. And in each one of them is a message in itself that provides us to be a light to the world. Here we have Jesus Christ expounding to us. Um, let's just read those. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and and obviously persecuted Christ as well. If you want to avoid persecution, you soft-pedal the word of God. If you want to avoid persecution, you blend in with society. You don't exhibit these qualities that are antagonistic to the mentality of society and you'll just blend in and chances are for the time being you'll avoid the persecution of humanity on the other hand you'll you'll bear the the wrath of god eventually so if so thank you for bringing that point up i want to just go into a little bit of the background let's go to uh back to revelation 3 i want to go into a little bit of the background of this church as i mentioned this was a excuse me for the speaker. I don't want to be presumptuous. <laughs> As I mentioned, this is this is a church located in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, a large and pros- prosperous, that's one of the key words, large and prosperous city. It was located in the Lycos Valley, and it was on some major trade routes, mainly one major trade route, but it was along the trade routes of of, uh, some of the key trading centers in that area. And it flourished, in fact, um, particularly under the Roman Empire, which provided peace to the whole region. This particular city was vulnerable to the attacks of outsiders, uh, not because it didn't have the kind of protection of, of, you know, the normal city has these walls around it to protect it, but because it didn't have an an indigenous supply of water. The water that it received was from an outside source. Two main outside sources. One was from Colossae, and one was from, um, it'll it'll be here in a minute here, sorry, Hierapolis. Those two areas, and and so from those areas, they via these uh, aqueducts, they would channel water into this particular city. So if uh, an, um, an invading force wanted to to surround the area and uh, stop, you know, cut off the water supply, it would only be a matter of time before they'd have to surrender. So it was vulnerable to attack. Um, 
it was also a, a center for, of, of, of industry where they provided this very, very high quality of clothing there. And they had, had a medical facility nearby which had this eye salve. And all of this ties in and weaves into this picture that, that John is inspired to provide with all of its um, typology and irony that's there because, um, because of the characteristic of this church. Uh, there's this object lesson that John tries to convey to them. And unless you understand a little bit of that background, you could lose perspective on, on, the, on the lesson that's being taught here. And uh, one of the things about these two uh, sources of water was that one was from a hot water springs, these mineral hot water springs from Hierapolis, that uh, by the time they got to the city actually became lukewarm. And uh, the other cold water, the frigid fresh cold water uh, that was generated from Colossae, um, by the time it got to um, Laodicea, it was, it was lukewarm as well. So you have these geographical um, factors there that tied in with the lesson that was being, was being taught here to this particular church. And as we read here, um, Jesus Christ said, I know your works. Uh, the reality is that God is aware of all of our activities uh, and our passions and our thoughts. And he says that you are neither cold nor hot. And then he goes on to say, I wish you were cold and, or hot. In other words, it is my take on this that Christ is clearly happy with us being cold or hot, but not being lukewarm. He's, he, this, I mean, these are strong words when he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Those are, those are very, very powerful words that we need to take seriously. So if, if Jesus Christ is saying that we, he wants us to be either cold or hot, what are we to determine from that? Well, I think we have a concept of what being passionate is. It's going to be passionate about, th- uh, about things that are, that are good and right and, 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 and upright and, and, and praiseworthy. These are things that we can be passionate about and, and supportive of. But there's the other aspect too, and, and I touched on that, I guess, when I talked about, about abortion. You can be passionate against something. So I think when it talks about cold or hot here, I think, he's, I think what John is saying is that you need to be passionate about things that are right and good, be passionate for those things, and you need to be passionate and for and against, rather, those things that are negative and that would cause us to sin and that have, def- that have um, been um, propagated by Satan to influence the world, which brings destruction and suffering and sickness and disease and all of the things that we see in the world and wars and conflict uh, and, and, and uh, depression and discouragement, all of these things which are the byproduct of living a life that's antagonistic to, um, to God's way of life. But these, although these passions in some ways are uh, polar opposites, they're still part of the Christian life. We need to be passionate about, about, both, of, there are, about both of those. We, there are examples that we can find in Scripture that um, uh, for, uh, we can turn to um, John 2 and verses 15, 13 to 17, John 2. That's the email that I sent you, Adrian. <laughs> That didn't get to you about which scripture reading. Um, John 2. You might get it. You know, it's interesting. I got an email 
from uh, Mr. Watson about six months after the fact. It was sent in. It was sent sometime in April, and I received it in November. And I'm reading this, and I thought, what is this email about? And then I actually looked at the date. Somehow it was out in cyberspace for six months, and it finally got to me. Sounds like our Canadian mail system, does it? <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Um, so let's begin in John 2, verses 13 to 17. 13. Now the Passover, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money change, changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of the cords, of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and, and poured out the changers, changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, Take these things away. Take these things away. He didn't just say, Take these things away. He said, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And when his disciples, then, then his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for, for your house has eaten me up. There's the example of Jesus Christ. His zeal for what was good and right was always obviously there, but he had a zeal for what was wrong. And we see that reflected in his actions here in the temple. We have to have that same kind of a zeal for the things that are evil and bad that are destructive. In this case, desecrating the, the house of God. Uh, I won't have, uh, you can just write in your notes, but I won't turn there for the sake of time. In Proverbs 6, verse 16, Proverbs 6 talks about six things that God hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. And one of those things is, you were talking about, Adrian, was pride. Pride. Um, people that run to, 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 um, to where there's violence. And, uh, you know, the, the gossip and, and all of those things that God hates. Clearly, God hates those things. He doesn't hate the sinner. God always wants to redeem the sinner, but he hates those actions. In Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, turn with me to Hebrews 1. In verse 8. I have a bad habit of saying Hebrews 1 and then not saying verse 8. Right, Grace? So just yell out. If I don't say the verse, Hebrews 1 and verse 8. And this, I just want you to focus on the contrast between this passion for what is good and, and a passion against what is wrong. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And then, therefore, these strong words of therefore, therefore, when you see the word therefore, you have to look at the reason it's what it's there for. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your, your companions. God the Father is commending his Son, God the Son, by saying, because of this, because of your love for righteousness and your hate for lawlessness, I have blessed you and I have, and I have anointed you. Um, and there are many scriptures that we go, could go to, but I want you to turn with me to, to uh, Romans 12 here for a minute. Because this goes back again to this passion that we have that would make us the, uh, the salt of the earth. Uh, Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2.
verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the re- by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable, what is the good and acceptable will of God, and perfect will of God. This is our living sacrifice to God. This is our reasonable service to God. And skip down to verse 9. And he shows, he shows us again, like we, when we were reading in uh, Matthew 5, this is how you present yourself as a living sacrifice. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Again, this contrast between this passion for what is good and this passion against what is evil. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence. Again, this is addressing the whole issue of passion, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, giving to hospitality, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's such a beautiful passage there, identifying how our passion for what is good and right and upright needs to be expressed in our love for one another. First and foremost, our love for one another within the fellowship of Jesus Christ. But then even to the point of our enemies not not dealing evil, not dealing with evil by being evil, but with good. Turn with me back to Revelation. Revelation 3. So we have the, uh, the great physician, Jesus Christ, who offers his credentials as the creator in the, of, of the universe and of every individual human being. And he's, and he's the one who is examining this particular church even as he examines us. And this church is found wanting. They're found to be cold. They're found not to be cold or hot, but to be lukewarm. That's the diagnosis. Complacency. Lukewarmness. And then we have the prognosis, which is the outcome of this is you'll be cast out. If you continue along this path, this is what is going to happen. The spiritual disease will actually separate you from God and you will, you actually, this is a life-threatening, an eternal life-threatening condition. I will spew you out. So that's the prognosis. If you continue along this path, if you continue to, if you are a person coming to a medical doctor and he would say, if you continue to drink excessively like you're drinking, if you continue to smoke, if you continue to live the lifestyle that you're living, you're going to die in six months. And Jesus Christ is saying, if you continue along this path, you're going to to jeopardize. In fact, you're going to lose out on eternal salvation. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And then he provides the, looks at the cause. What is the cause of this? Because any good physician 
in Christ being the great physician, is going to address the cause of the matter here. He says, why? Because you say. Now he's telling you this is the cause of your state of lukewarmness, of your complacency. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing. That's what we were, Gord mentioned that, Adrian talked about this self-sufficiency. But this I am rich is this um, focus on the material things of this world. And, and, and also, not only just focusing on it, there is an obsession. I see within society, and probably this is the time of year, Thanksgiving in the U.S. when you have Black Friday, but when you have Christmas, there's this obsession with materialism. People are addicted to things and money and power. Power and money go hand in hand. And Jesus Christ is telling them that Yes, you, th- you say I am rich. And you are physically rich, but you're spiritually poor and have become wealthy. So the, the mentality here is one of trusting in oneself and trusting in one's material possessions. And saying I have need of nothing means that there's a, self- a sense of self-sufficiency instead of Instead of sufficiency in Jesus Christ, there's a self-sufficiency that has been obtained here. We, in this North American society that we live in, with all of our affluence, even the poorest person in this congregation is considered rich in today's society. When you, when you look at the world, the poorest person in this room is probably within the top 5% of the world in terms of wealth. We are a wealthy nation. And there is a potential for us to start trusting in our riches, trusting in our physical, material possessions. And that's what these individuals did. They started trusting in themselves. In fact, the implication here is that they had become wealthy through their own endeavors. Um, and so they were kind of patting themselves on the back. Have, have, it says, I am rich, have become wealthy. It's like um, it's through my hard work and effort that I have what I have. No credit given to God. Of course, God commends um, industry. God wants us to be hardworking. He expects us to be hardworking. But any blessing that comes is a result of God blessing us. There are a lot of people in the world that work hard and have nothing. We have our blessings. We can work hard and and be blessed for it. But ultimately, the credit would go to God. I want you to keep your finger there, but turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, please. A comment made in regards to to this uh, potential trap that human beings can fall into. 1 Timothy 6, Paul's talking to Timothy, one of his um, young evangelists. And in verse 17, we read, so 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present age 
not to be haughty. Again, the, the, the uh, combination or the connection between wealth and, uh, and, and pride. Nor to trust in uncertain riches. Nothing wrong with being rich. I've, I've no, there's nothing wrong with being rich. But the stipulation is that ne- let it never um, be wealth that is taken for granted and not given credit to God and trusted in. If you have wealth through your hard work, that's, that's a blessing that you can thank God for, as long as you do thank God for it. But not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Ultimately, that's where our trust needs to be, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So if you are wealthy, you have become wealthy through honest means, through hard work, Thank God for that, because it is him who has given you those things, and he it actually says um, he's given those things for you to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong with that wealth. But then it goes on to say, let them do good. So there's a qualifier here. You're supposed to use that wealth in the right way, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for yourselves them, themselves a good found, a foundation, for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So if you happen to be blessed with wealth, which, some, which sometimes can be a curse, and quite often is, um, you need to look at this scripture carefully because God says use that wealth in a way that's constructive, that's positive, that's generous, and not just pour it on yourself. You need to share it with others. Then it's okay to, it's okay then, then, you can, then you can use your wealth and feel comfortable about that. Turn back to, uh, to Revelation 3. One of the things I just want to um, look at, because I was thinking to myself, what are some of the telltale signs of, uh, of falling into the state of, of uh, complacency and and mediocrity and lukewarmness with lack of zeal. What, is, what are some of the things? And I was trying to reflect on my own mind. What do I need to look out for? What are the yellow flags or the red flags that we need to look out for? Because after all, Jesus Christ is telling this group of people, he said, you don't even know it. You are all of these things. You're wretched, you're poor, you're, you're in all of these things, but you can't even see it. So how do we, how do we get... How do we resolve this issue? How do we come to the point where we recognize that we are what it's being, what is being described here? Um, and one of the things, and I, you can think about that for a minute while I, while I address one point, is that comfortable. The word comfortable comes to mind. When you start to become too comfortable where you're at in your Christian life, I don't think God ever wants us to be completely comfortable. I think God wants us to push the limits a little bit. He, and, and you know, that comes with wisdom, that comes with the, the um, understanding of God's word, that comes with the, the motivation of the Holy Spirit that will lead us. But when, that le- when we are led there, I guarantee you that God will lead you down paths that are uncomfortable. But when you know God is leading you there, you need to move forward in those paths. Otherwise, you can come very comfortable where you're at. When you start to feel very comfortable, you must start thinking to yourself, 
am I becoming a little bit laid back, a little bit Laodicean in my mentality? There are probably other red flags. Jan, you put up your hand? No, you're just scratching your neck. <laughs> Good thing you're not at an auction. <laughs> there are probably other things that are red flags. Probably your, your prayer life is lagging and your Bible study is lagging. There are probably things that are happening in your life that should be little red flags or yellow flags or saying warning, 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 because something is wrong here. Um, Yeah, Jesus Christ is telling this church, you think you're all these things, but really what you are are wretched and miserable. You know, the um, and blind and naked. And then he, he provides the prescription. This is he's, we've, we have the we have the examination, we have the diagnosis, we have the we have the prognosis, we have the cause, and then Jesus Christ comes up and says, "This is the prescription." I counsel you. In other words, come to me. I'm willing to give you the direction and advice on what to do. To buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments. And white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may be not revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus Christ is saying, come to me. And of course, coming to, to, to Jesus Christ, coming to God, coming to the Father through Jesus Christ, is, is done through, through prayer. One of the things that we can pray for, I won't turn there necessarily, but in Hebrews 4, um, it talks about the... Oh, let's turn there, because you know what? I'll end up misquoting it. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, and beginning with verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, that rest... Lest anyone fall after the same examples of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes of him to whom we must give account." So it talks about the Word of God being able to get to the very soul and the heart of our motives and our being. And we need to ask God to give us the spectacles of His spectacles, His Holy Spirit, to be able to see through His eyes, through His Word, in order to see ourselves, to look into our soul and ourselves, to be able to see what our motives, to understand what our motives are. And we can do that. Of course, the Word of God is God's expression of His truth. And it is through that Word that many times we get to see ourselves as, as uh, God sees us. And so we have to put on God's spectacles, which is really understanding and, and, and using the Word of God. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, lest, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, 
but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly or confidently, is a better word, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we, we can go to God. We can ask, going through Jesus Christ, who understands our every circumstance, to open up our eyes and see ourselves as we are. We know the example of Paul when he was on the road to Damascus where he was struck blind. And through that experience, and eventually the scales fell off his eyes in such a way that he not only could see, physically see what was around him, but he came to see the truth of Jesus Christ and the word of God in a way that he'd never seen it before. And we can ask God to open up our eyes when we run into the, when we see those yellow flags or those red flags. We can ask God to open up our eyes to see. But the vision isn't just about looking introspectively to see where we've fallen short. The vision is, goes well beyond that. Because uh, as we know, when we go to the Feast of Tabernacles, God wants us to um, see a vision that goes well beyond just looking introspectively. He wants us to see the vision of what he has a plan for us. God has a plan for us. That plan began in Genesis you know, when he said he, he made us in his image and, and, and we're developing through the experience of human and the human crucible of life to become in his likeness. That plan is expounded throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. He wants us to have a vision of that plan. When we lose sight of that plan, that's when we end up going down this meandering road of, of meaninglessness. Uh, the, the, the expression that is... Uh, um, is mentioned in in uh, Proverbs is that uh, the people without vision perish, or the people that don't have this prophetic insight into the purpose of humanity and the purpose that we have individually and collectively will go astray. There's other translations that say go astray. So we fall into the this mentality that. Uh, um, that uh, really there is no purpose in life, and as, as a result of that, uh, without that purpose, you cannot have passion. Passion and purpose go hand in hand. If you're going to be passionate about something, it has to be with purpose. There has to be a purpose in life. But what is the expression that if you don't have a passion, for, if if there if you don't have a passion for something in life, then life isn't worth living, or something to that effect? I don't know the exact. I haven't quoted it right. Grace, do you know what the quote is? Okay, but the, the, the sentiment is there. If there isn't something in your life that you can feel passionate about, then life isn't worth living. I want to just uh, I want to look at uh, one other aspect of this, um, and that's the aspect of being clothed with. You know, they talked about these garments. They thought they were had these beautiful garments. They had this industry there with the best quality. I don't know whether they had stages where they bought down and, and you know, show their fashion. You know, but the reality is that they were they were proud about the garments they had. And 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 the irony of that is that Jesus Christ said that when I look at you, I see you as naked, shameful. And they what they hadn't done, of course, was they hadn't been covered with righteousness with the righteous garments that, that only God can offer us. Two ways, of course. There is righteousness that comes through the forgiveness of sin, which is the only way to, to 
cleanse ourselves of things that we've committed in the past. And the other is through living a life uh, that reflects the, the life of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3. We'll read from verses 1 to 5. This is talking about um, the character of a, a wife here, but um, that can be uh, extended to every one of us, really, when it comes down to it. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husband. And even if someone, and even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be may be won by the the conduct of their wives. In other words, your your actions speak louder than your words, and if your actions convey the 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 very nature of Jesus Christ, then it's possible that you're going to win over your spouse. And when they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear, that is respect or honor or reverence, do not let your beauty, stop statement there, do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging of the hair, of the wearing of gold, or of putting on fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So there were, there were the things that the, 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 the Laodiceans strived for, wealth and this, uh, in, in very every aspect. But God says the things that are precious to him, that are better than fine gold, are the true um, qualities that we see revealed here uh, in First Peter. That this, the gentle nature, this incorruptible um, and gentle spirit, uh, that um, that wives were to exhibit in in their marriage relationship, but in our relationship with Jesus Christ, of course, that is also true. Turn with me to First Peter verses one. We we'll just go back here, First Peter one, verses eighteen and nineteen. Because there is the righteousness that comes through the experience of life, and there's no other way for God to create righteousness in us, and there's justification. Righteousness comes through experience and comes through the fiery trial. The, the one thing, the, 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 the um, prescription that Jesus Christ gives here is one that is, a, 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 it is a really a bitter pill to swallow. Medicine isn't always a nice thing to take. And what Jesus Christ is saying here, if you come to me, and he's saying come to me, and I'll refine you with, with the fiery fi- uh, fires of trials and difficulties. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're saying to him, when you are in that circumstance, and of course um, God will in due season, whenever he sees fit in our lives, Uh, allow us to go through trials and difficulties because it is through those fiery trials and hardship only through that that God can perfect our nature. And so when we accept the remedy that Jesus Christ offers, it's saying that I will, whatever it is Jesus Christ, whatever it is God that you want to send my way, that I need to take, as bitter as it may be, as hard as it may be, I'm willing to take it 
because I know the outcome of that, and I know your your desire for me to be uh, to be blessed by it. The outcome of that will be good. For nothing that God directs towards us is meant for anything but our good. Verse 18. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It was through this sacrifice that we could be cleansed, and ultimately it was through the love of God before we turned to him. In, in, in 1 John 5, it says that we love, we love, well, you could say we, we, we love in, the, in brackets. Um, it's it. Let me just turn there. 1 John 5. 1 John 5. We love him. Sometimes him is in brackets because um, it can go beyond just loving God. We love him because he first loved us. It was God reaching out to each of us out of his love. So we came to, to, we are where we are now because of God extending his love to us. And when these Laodiceans, or when we follow this path that we see here in this lesson that uh, is being generated through this letter that John wrote, um, we go astray. It will be the love of God that will bring us back again to him, ultimately. Revelation 3 and verses 18. He says, As many as I love, in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke. It is the love of God that is expressed in his chastisement of each one of us. That we might become zealous. It says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. He wants us to turn around, to turn our lives around, if that state ever occurs. So back in the back of our mind, as we reflect on our, these, white, these, these yellow flags or red flags, we need to recognize that this particular chapter in the Bible is one that we can turn to for direction and for encouragement. And we know that, ultimately, even though he says that he will spew us out of his mouth if we are um, lackluster in our Christian life, if we're complacent in our Christian life, he goes on to say that, come to me, and I'll provide, with, provide for you a means towards getting back to where you were, where we have a right relationship together. And it'll, become, it'll be through the refining fires of trials and difficulties. And I'll clothe you with white garments. And that, those white garments will also be through trials and difficulties and through the justification that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, I'm going to turn back there again to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. You can keep your finger in, in Revelation 3 or your, your ribbon there. 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read um, verses 3 through to 22, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
So that's 1 Peter 1, verse 3. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the powers of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last, last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials and the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. I think I want to pause here for just a minute because one of the things that sometimes we lose sight of when it talks about us being blind, <clears throat> sometimes we forget about the price that it took to redeem us. And Peter, of course, is reminding us here that it was only through the love of God and giving his son. Now that is, we make that statement but when we really sit and think about that, when I think about um, if I had to sacrifice my son or one of my grandchildren, <clears throat> what, does that, what does that mean? I can't fathom that. I can't fathom what that would mean. And I know that Abraham did that with Isaac. And yet, and yet God gave his son the one who, he, who existed with him for eternity, his beloved son. And he gave his son and jeopardized, well, he didn't, he wasn't the cause of that jeopardy, but he put Jesus Christ in a position where he actually could have lost out on salvation and could have, could have died and not been resurrected. Had Jesus sinned, and I know some people would contest that, they would argue that that could never have happened. Um, that's subject for debate when we go downstairs. But to me, the reality is that <clears throat> my understanding of the love of God when I reflect on that sacrifice makes me um, sit back and uh, appreciate in my limited way what God has done for me. And I think when we lose sight of that, complacency can set in. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again or begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Then it talks about the mortality of, of, of human life. And let's just conclude by going back to um, Revelation 3 and just reading from in verse 20, because this ends on an extremely positive note. And although this letter written to this particular church has no words of commendation, always God reaches out to, to each one of us, even as he reached out to this particular church. 
He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus Christ is just waiting for us to turn back to him. Whenever we are in a situation where we feel there is no hope, where we feel that maybe God would spew us out of his mouth, and that we have no reason or, or just to justifiably be accepted back by God, Jesus Christ is there waiting, knocking at the door. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, one thing about, one thing about God, he always gives us that free moral agency. He gives us the, the opportunity to make the right choice. He never forces us. He knocks on the door, and if we open the door and invite him in, he will come in. But we need to do that. We, we cannot and expect that Jesus Christ will bust down the door to come into our lives, but he will invite us in. I mean, we can invite him in, and he will come and join us. It says, and I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. What a beautiful thing to think about this intimate relationship where we sit together and we talk and we eat. It's metaphorical, of course. It's, it, it, it's a symbolic but it indicates this beautiful, intimate relationship, loving relationship that Jesus Christ offers us. And then it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me. Unbelievable. I will grant to sit with me on my, father, on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we have this high priest who did overcome who knows our every weakness, who is willing to reach out to us if we only open the door and invite him in. And he offers us this wonderful, beautiful promise that if we do that, if we continue to persist and overcome and be passionate about our calling, that we will sit with him on a throne by his Father. But the corollary is also there, isn't it? If we don't continue to be passionate if we don't continue to remain focused, if we don't have that vision, if we do go astray, if we don't overcome, then all of this will be taken away. That promise is a conditional promise. And then it goes on to say this personal statement, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I was talking about this um, uh, little boy, 14-year-old boy, who went to this conference and decided after seeing the suffering of so many other individuals who had the same plight, that he was going to do something. He had a passion in his, in his heart to do something. And the article concludes this way. The campaign was given, um, has given uh, this young boy, Jonathan, mental and physical strength. I am stronger now because I know I, what I am about. Listen to those words. And reflect to that. Think about that in terms of your Christian calling. I know what I am about. And I know what I'm supposed to do here. He knew he had a purpose and a calling and a passion. Out of his compassion came passion. When we see the world suffering the way we see it suffering, and we can't but help to see the world suffering because we're bombarded with that daily, do we have that kind of compassion for our fellow man? And because we know the solution to the suffering of humanity, Do we have that kind of passion that God has called us to? We're just a small group of people. CGI, Church of God International, and I know that there's a greater um, spiritual organism than our organization. I understand that. 
We're just a small group of people. But, but don't, don't underestimate the power of God to work through us. But he can't work through people that are complacent, people that don't have focus, that people that don't have a passion for following what he's called us to. And when we see this young, young boy, Jonathan, being moved with such a purpose, a, a righteous purpose, a, a, a real worthy purpose, and yet when we compare to what God has called us to, something even greater than that, how much more should we be passionate about that calling? God has called us to that. Let us be zealous in doing the, the will of God, both for what is right and good and against what is evil and wrong in this world. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.